Welcome back to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. The podcast where we do things in a most excellent manner. Talking about uh, two, uh, sorry, chapter 1.1 of book 3. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot believe that the topic of Catholic versus Protestant has carried over into a whole new book. Like he just spent a whole book talking about Catholic versus Protestant. And that's the, like that's the summary. I can summarize the whole book. Book two, Catholic versus Protestant. What was the conclusion? What were the compelling arguments? Oh, no, there was neither of those things. The whole book, the whole, every page was just Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, end. Even the characters in his own memoir are bored of him talking about it. It's unbelievable. And then we finally, you know, end the book and carry on to book three, a new, not just a new chapter. By the way, every new chapter in book two should have had a new topic, but they just didn't. It was just the same topic. We finally end not just the chapter, but the 20th chapter and the book itself, the edition, the tome, put an end to it, start a new book. You know when they say start a new page, as in like a fresh start? George doesn't get that. Every page is about the same thing. You know when they say start a new chapter, as an even bigger metaphor, like, yeah, really just put an end to something and start again. George doesn't get that. Every chapter is about the same thing. And you know when you end a book and read a whole other one, it's still about the same thing. What is what is this guy? Like, what is this guy on about? Shut up, dude. Like, no one cares. Even one sentence about this is boring. And you've written 20 long-ass chapters. I actually... Like, this book makes me so angry. I feel like it's actually like impacting my quality of life. It's so bad. And like bad is fine, but bad and this long is just unacceptable. Techrific says this is mind numbing stuff. If a mind can glaze over mine just did or mine did months ago. Techrific quoted a bit. I begged Teresa one evening after she had removed the cloth to tell whosoever called that I was not at home, and when she had put my coffee on a table I said, The moment has come for me to pick out a book from the shelves, but which I knew that a large volume containing Shakespeare plays stood on the third shelf. Yeah, well, look, that is that is mind-numbingly boring. But at least, like, that snippet that you chose, Tech, is at least narrative. Like, he's explaining things happening. But there's just so much of this book where it's just his thoughts. And his thoughts are... Or just a conversation. But each side of the conversation is clearly just his thoughts. Like, he's just talking to himself. Whoever the other character is is just like, you know throwing little layups in the air for him to slam Dunkey's point home. It's unbelievable. Acoustic Eels says, hang in there. Thank you. It'll be done soon. Thank you. Easy for me to say, I know. I saw this post on my feed and I was like, last book of the last book. Wonder how they're going. As expected, I suppose. What was my discussion prompt? I should probably remind myself. It's a whole new book and he's still talking about Catholic versus Protestant. George, shut up. No one cares. Okay. Yeah, well, that's basically what I just said. Um, all right, so we only got halfway through the first chapter before I rage quit. So let's continue. Who has heard of a more horrible discovery than to have gone blind in one's sleep? Is it to be wondered that his courage died and that the rest of his life was lived between priest and doctor in terror of death for he had become a Catholic? Oh my God. Like, for a second, for a second, it's like an interesting concept, someone going blind in their sleep. 
right? And then he ends the sec- he ends that sentence with, for he had become Catholic. Like, what's got, it's got nothing to do with Catholic, dude. Shut up about it. Shut the fuck up about Catholic. No one gives a shit. It's astonishing. Nor were blindness and fear of death all his misfortunes. His wife wearied of more hall, and her sons bored her. Peter was witless. John, the first president of the Irish Republic, was arrested and thrown and driven along the roads with other rebels at Castlebar. He died in prison. George, the eldest son, a mild visionary youth, was interested in literature and was admired and made much of the Holland house, as the colonel tells me. And without wife or child, the last years of the blind man at Moore Hall must have been very sad and lonely. One room was the same as the other to him, and with the disappearance of the lake, his thoughts returned to Ashbrook and the little Protestant cemetery near Strait Abbey. He was the last who thought of Ashbrook with affection. My father did not seem to like to speak of the place. He only went there to collect rents, and the same unsentimental errand took me to the Ashbrook when I returned from Paris in 1880. Tom Ruttledge and I had driven through Mayo, visiting all my estates, trying to come to terms with the tenants, and at Ashbrook, a crowd had followed the car up a boreen, babbling of the disastrous year they had been through. The potato crop had been a failure. There was no diet in them. The phrase caught on my ear, and I remember well the two-storied house standing on the bare hillside. The woods had been felled long ago, all except for a few ash trees left standing in the corner of the field to shelter the cattle from the wind, and the house, having been inhabited by peasants for a long time, presented a sad degradation, a sagging roof and windows so black that I did not dare to think of the staircase leading to the drawing room in which my great-grandmother had stitched that pretty piece of tapestry which now is the Kensington Museum. Dunn, my tenant, a heavy, surly fellow whose manners were not engaging, we heard afterwards he was the leader of a notable conspiracy against us, asked us to step inside, but fearing to meet with chickens in the parlour that perhaps still had the ancient paper on its walls, I pleaded that the day was drawing to a close and asked him if he would be kind enough to take me to my great-grandfather's grave. He turned aside and the peasants, answering for him, must said, sure, we will, we will your honour. So this is the brook. I thought to myself, and watched the water trickle through masses of weeds and rushes. We crossed some fields and came to a ruined chapel, and my peasants pointed to an incised stone let into the wall, the loneliest grave, it seemed to me, in all the world, and drowsing in my armchair, unable to read, the sadness that I had experienced returned to me, and I felt and saw, as I had done thirty years ago, I had thought then of the poor old man who had built more hall deciding at last that his ashes were to be carried to ashbrook but the colonel as had mentioned straight abbey the usual burial place of captain george moore and his descendants and the little ruined chapel that was shown to me can't be straight abbey a few days afterwards Another letter came from the colonel, replying to my reproaches that his answer to my questions were vague and insufficient, and from this letter I learned that my great-grandfather's misfortunes did not cease with his death. He had left instructions in his will that he wished to be buried with his ancestors in the little Protestant cemetery near Stade Abbey. The colonel had discovered it half a mile down the road after having searched Strait Abbey vainly for the tomb of Captain George Moore, and his letter told me how he had had some difficulty in pushing his way through a mass of briars and hemlock and in finding the inscription among 
the ruins of the church, but he had found it. So it was there that my great-grandfather had wished to be buried, but he was buried at Ashbrook in a Catholic chapel by mistake, the colonel says in his letter. By mistake, I cried. Any breach of faith were better than that. He should be laid in with his Protestant forebears. The Irish, Spaniard, Catholic back, belly and sides would not have hesitated to ignore her husband's instructions. She must have come from London for George, the historian. An agnostic like his master Gibbons would have buried his father as the will directed if he had not been overcome by his mother, who of course would like to conceal the fact that she had married a man in such a Protestantism that at last had chosen to be buried in a Protestant cemetery. I would like to know who was at this funeral and if the historian came over from London to attend it or remained gadding about Holland House, courting Louisa Brown, whom he afterwards married in spite of the fact that it was her uncle of her brother who secured the conviction of John Moore, the historian's brother. The marriage, that marriage would have added another grief to the old merchant's many griefs. A portrait of Louisa hangs in the dining room. She has a, she as she appears in it as a voluptuous young woman wrapped in gauze, and by her hangs a portrait of her uncle, Lord Altmont. A copy of the portrait by Reynolds in Westport. Both are in different works, but there is a good picture in the dining room of Moore Hall, a portrait of my grandfather painted in 1836. Certainly not earlier, and therefore not a Reburn. This, nor is it a Caddison Smith who was painting at that time in Dublin for his thick, heavy touch is nowhere visible in my grandfather's portrait. The drawing is sure, almost unconscious, revealing an old man with white hair growing scantily about a high forehead, and though no books are in the background, we divine a library and a life shelf sheltered from every misfortune. Who could have painted the portrait? Wilkie, perhaps. He was painting about that time, but there are a few life-size portraits by Wilkie and in none that I have seen is the drawing so thoughtful, nor does he show much interest in character except in his portrait. He seems to have said it in it all that my grandfather tells us about himself. In this preface preface to the French Revolution, a very remarkable portrait, no doubt, and for a long time I sat struggling with an idea that would not come into a phrase, that the picture and the preface might be compared to the music and words, opera and libretto, something like that, but it would not come, and I got up and took the preface out of the drawer. Preface to my historical memoirs of the French Revolution to be published after my death, August 20, 1837. I, this day, complete my 64th year. I have for some time been engaged in a history of the French Revolution. I, you know, I, I early in life began collecting books on this subject and now fill up an entire side of a very pretty library, the beautiful place they are, most of them bad in style and worse in spirit and sentiment. There are a few of them which I could enjoy reading where... If not for the task I have laid down for myself, this task has been affected and given interest to my most wretched productions. Any book which offers me a choice of a new fact or a solution to any difficult attached to old facts interests me, and I find amusement in examining and amusement in abasement of what a French called M. Nui. And my principal objects, beautiful as this place is, and much as I love it, I confess I have not always been able to exclude M. Nui from its precincts. There are hours in which I have not been able to ex- keep it away general vague reading without any specific object afforded me no protection against it but since i have sat down to my task i scarcely know that what it is i have a rough copy carried on nearly to the present time to every written page i have a blank one in which i put down a new facts and reflections of the news i wish to go on for some time longer in this matter but my age as mentioned in my head of my preface of minimization me there is no time left on a loss on the public ever have an insight into my history my rough copy of the alternate blank page is impossible for anyone to make anything or do to my death i will wish my history to appear not in the form in which my rough copy exhibits it 
I have several times published, but never have any with any success. So there is a I am tired of publication in my lifetime. Besides, I foresee my history will be pretty voluminous. I do not like the trouble of superintending my proofs. As I am a man of fortune, I leave by my will five hundred pounds to defray the expenses of publication, as the publication is in the manner awarded and appointed by me in my testimony disposition. No one who survives will, me will be answerable for anything it contains. I foresee many things I say will give offence, but are my objects of truth in my con- country. As amusement was my great object in undertaking this task, it may be said that I have already gained my end and never knowing in new science I began it, but having written a history of the French Revolution impregnated with all the feelings and sentiments of the Englishman, I've written in my style, I hope purely and thoroughly English, I am ambitious, it should be read after me, I have had no celebrity in my life, but as prospect of this posthumous fame pleased me, pleases me at this moment, I may say with emasmus, he looks so pretty, blah blah blah, French shit, though I... Oh, Latin shit, though I cannot add with the temestil that the blah blah, having missed the applause and even notice of my age, I ought perhaps to be indifferent about the opinions of those that follow their applause, should I ever gain it will not reach me when the grave is closed over me, this is true, but we are so made that while we are living we think with pleasure that the, we shall not for, be forgotten after our deaths. The nature of this feeling is beautifully expressed by Fielding in the passage of Gibbon which transcribed in the account of his own life which adds up to my wish that my history should be read after my death is that I am convinced no account of the great event of the French Revolution is all its parts will be fair and impartial coming from a Frenchman nor certainly will do justice to my country. I am anxious to have the merits of the Duke of Wellington duly appreciated as having done more in war than any capital that ever existed. He entered on the contest with more disadvantages on the side, as will be explained in history. He had greater difficulties to encounter and arrived at more glorious results, though not a Frenchman, I am perfectly acquainted with the French language, and there are few Frenchmen better informed with respect to the history, literature, and what are called the statistics of France that I am, so that I conceive myself perfectly well qualified as much as any Frenchman for the task I have undertaken in this improved copy which i am now transcribing i break the history into chapters with a view to the grouping of the facts of which it consists it is this which i recall grouping and that distinguishes the task of the historian from that of the anotist and there is no point of greater importance in the history than the manner of which this grouping is executed the deficiencies of some celebrated historians in this particularly may be noticed how abruptly it breaks off some pages must have been mislaid and i sought among the litter in the drawer and finding none returned to my armchair full of regret that my grandfather had not written a biography instead of a history for such sincerity such simplicity and such humility are qualities that i rarely met with except in masterpieces some writers, it is true, have adopted humility as a literary artifact, but my grandfather is not aware that he is humble. His prose dreams and unfolds like clouds going by. In speaking of Moorhall, I might have said that it stood on a pleasant green hill which words, woods followed the winding lake and attributed the melancholy of this people that are mountains. But my grandfather merely says in his beautiful place, and the reader's imagination is free to remember the place that seemed as beautiful. Grandfather is able to accept his own failure without attributing circumstances. Writing of the history of applause that comes after him, it would not matter to him, the grave having closed over. But we are so made that while we live, we think with pleasure that we shall not be forgotten after our death. This feeling, he adds modestly, has been beautifully transcribed by Gibbon's account. You're just repeating what he wrote. For this modesty and for many other reasons, I love my grandfather and I like to think of his life following on uneventfully for three or four more years in a pretty library and then his ashes being carried to Kiltmore, Kiltoom, sorry, where the applause of the world can never reach him by that 
right do I have published his preface without his history, perhaps perturbing his rest, for we are not sure that the dead cannot hear us. The colonel, who has inherited his grandfather's taste for history, should edit the French Revolution and begin reading and finding entertaining. He gave me the preface, remarking that our grandfather had managed to escape notice, even in his own house, which is indeed the case. Our mother used to say that when his wife opened the door of his library to consult him, or to make pretense of consulting him regarding the management of his property, he would answer, my dear Louisa, all that you do is right, and with on these words the old man would drop back into his meditations. And I need to go and stop a little baby from fussing. Be right back. Pardon the interruption. That was about an eight-hour interruption, but I'm back. Right, let's finish this. One's first memory is generally of one's mother, but my grandmother was my first human being that came into my consciousness. A crumpled lady of 65 who introduced me to the gingerbread nuts, which, however, she did not allow me to eat. And this incident may have impressed her upon my mind, but now I come to think of it, my second memory is of her. She fell one day as she was coming downstairs, and I remember William Mullaney and Joseph Apple. Appley, carrying her into her room, and from that day onward she lived in two rooms in the charge of nurses carried out in fine days in a sort of sedan chair, and not only my first and second memories but my third is of her. I remember my father sitting at a small table writing letters by my bed on which his mother lay. He never spoke of her afterwards, and to me it seems strange not to speak of those we love, but that was my father's way. He never spoke of his mother or his brother Augustus, whom he loved next to his mother, and when I asked him about what books my grandfather had written, he answered some histories, leaving me in doubt if he had ever read one of them. But he must have looked into the huge manuscript, for 500 pounds were left for its publication, and he should have edited it. But my father did not appreciate the old gentleman who wrote his histories in the room overlooking the lake, he liked his mother, and all the charming letters that he wrote from school were sent to her, and it was to her and not to his father that he sent his Latin and English verses, for between 16 and 17 he seems to have had literary ambitions. But as soon as he went to Cambridge, he became interested in horses, hounds, and a lady whom he met at Bath. All this the colonel will write excellently well in his life of our father, for he seems to understand our father's character, though he hardly knew him, and shows a surprising appreciation of the antagonism which arose between mother and son as soon as the son had left school. Our father had inherited all character from her, perhaps that is why he loved her, an obstinate, impetuous character, and he had also inherited from her a taste for letter-writing, which followed him through life to the very end. And the letters that mother and son exchanged about the debts the son incurred at Cambridge, and about the lady that he wished to marry, uh, are very violent, and every quarrel was followed by violent reconciliation. A time of great storm and stress rolled on until he felt that another quarrel with his mother would be more than he could bear. So he went away to Russia, journeying through the Caucasus, getting to Asia Minor, how I know not, meditating on the nothingness of things and on suicide as a respite from the torture of existence. His diary breaks off suddenly to be taken up again two years after. All we know of these two years is that they were spent in the company of a man and his wife, 
no doubt the lady he met at Bath, who married soon after my father's flight and travelled with her husband in the East. The gentlemen of 1830 all had Byronic adventures, I said, and fell to thinking of the legitimate daughter that was born to him. My mother told my sister that she had seen the lady. My father had pointed her out, saying, She is my daughter. She married and died childless, an old woman, not very long ago, and it seems a pity and rather harsh that we should never have met, for it is quite probable that I might have liked her better than my legitimate relation. There can be no doubt that we should have been great friends, and I pondered the charm of an illegitimate relation especially a sister, and my father, whom I did not recognise in the avowal he is reported to have made to his wife, a reticent man he was, especially reticent about the dead, loquacious only about his journey to the east. It was probably the part of his life that was most real to him. After dinner, Joseph Appley always brought up tea to the summer room, and my father drank a large cup, sitting by a round rosewood table, on which stood a moderator lamp and that he did not eat bread or butter, and butter or cake, with his tea never ceased altogether to surprise me. After tea, my mother read a novel in an armchair, and soon as my book, my toys ceased to interest me, I clambered on my father's knee and begged him to tell me stories about the desert and the oases where the caravan had rested on its journey from Palestine to Egypt. My father had been obliged to go to Egypt to get permission to measure the Dead Sea and to survey the coasts, and I listened round-eyed to the tale of how the guides, discovering that the Christian dogs were chalking out the way along the passages inside the pyramid, threatened to extinguish the torches. His voyage down the Nile was a great delight to me, and between the age of six and seven I was quite familiar with the Blue Nile and the White Nile, and had many times mourned the death of a monkey. The poor little fellow tumbled out of the tree, and putting his hand to his side, looked up so plaintively that my father declared that for nothing in the world would he shoot another monkey. The story that I looked liked best was the bringing of the boat from Joppa on the backs of mules to the Dead Sea, and not satisfied with knowing the story myself, I wished everybody else to hear it, and very often embarrassed my father by insisting that he should tell his visitors that the mules could only totter a few hundred yards, so heavy was the boat, and then had to be changed, and that he had let down 1,800 feet of line without touching bottom, the water being so dense that the lead would not sink any further, and I took care that he should not skip the account of the storm that had arisen at a great fright of the Arabs and the waves, or the explanation that on any other sea except the Dead Sea the boat would certainly have been wrecked, but the story of all was a man of whom he met walking about some world-renowned ruins with a hammer in his hand. Standing before a statue, he would say, You've had that nose on your face for many thousand years. In one second you'll have it no longer. Whack! And away went the nose. No sooner had he finished the tale that he had perforce to tell the story of the merchant who used to go out at nightfall to seek European travellers, and if he saw one who looked as if he had money to spend, he would approach him and whisper in his ear that he, if came up a by-street with him, he would show him a real Korasan blade. The celebrated smithies of Damascus had been removed to Korasan, and the Korasan blades were being imitated to the for the European market, and one day the merchant related that he was no longer put 
to the expense of having new ones made. He had agents in Paris and London, and whenever these imitation swords came into the market, they were purchased for small sums and sent out again to be sold after nightfall for large prices. If you can let me have one of these blades, my father answered, I should like to take it home. No, said the crafty Persian, I have none left, but I have a real Khorasan blade, which I should very much like to sell you. Khorasan or imitation, I know not, but my many swords, scimitars and daggers were brought back in Arab brindles, looking like instruments for torture, and these were kept in great press in my nursery, which I was forbidden to open, but as a child cannot be gainsaid. And on his birthday, and my dearest wish was gratified when I was dressed as a Turk and rode about the estate flourishing a Khorasan blade above the head of my pony. The success of the ride encouraged me to pursue my inquiries into Eastern costumes and customs, and my father's diaries were examined, not the text that was too difficult for a child, but the camels with which the text was embellished. He said his eyes were keen, and with a lead pencil hard and sharp enough to have won all Ruskin's admiration, he followed the long shaggy bird-like necks the tufted and callous hides, the mobile lips of these bored ruminants, the nonconformists of the four-footed world, the Arab horse never seemed to have once tempted his pencil, and it is difficult to find a reason, for he must have said some wonderful, had some wonderful horses. He used to tell me of a journey from Jerusalem to, to Jeddo in a single day. The horse was very tired at the end of it, but he picked up his ears and began to trot as soon as he caught sight of the town. The only portrait of a horse that he ever attempted was a large watercolour of Anonymous, a very painstaking piece of work, of which he was a little ashamed, I think, before preferring to turn the conversation from the drawing to the race itself. The horse was going very well when he turned a shoe. I wanted him to say that the horse would have won it not been for the accident, but I could not get him to say that, and I remember going to Joseph Appleby, a taciturn, clandestine little man whom there is no necessity to describe here, for he has described in East the Waters under the name of John Randolph to find out the truth. Whether Anonymous would have won the Liverpool if he had not turned a shoe, he had done some writing himself and was disposed to be critical, and he thought, well, it is difficult to remember exactly his criticism of my father's writing, for he had <clears throat> a habit of dropping his voice and muttering to himself in his shirt collar, mumbling and turning suddenly to his press, that wonderful press in which all things could be found. It was out of that press the Easter waters came, out of the stable yard and out of my own heart. Oscott College had demonstrated to the satisfaction of my unhappy parent that it was impossible to teach me to write clean, intelligible letter, and in despair he allowed me to apply myself to the study of life. At Moore Hall there was no life except the life of the stable yard, and to it I went with the same appetite with which I went to the life of a studio afterwards. If I had remained at Moore Hall, I certainly should have ridden many steeple chases and perhaps succeeded in doing what my father had failed to do. A pretty indulgence it would be for me now, sitting here surrounded by impressionist pictures, to look back upon the day at Liverpool when the flag fell and we raced for the bit of hard ground, numbers of us coming down at the first fence, myself, however, escaping a fall and then away off into the country three miles over how many fences, and then the jump into the race course and the three quarters of a mile over hurdles. A pretty memory all that long way would have been for a man who was written a line of books, and I should certainly have had some such memory to play with it if my father could have restrained himself from asking the electors of Mayo to send him to Parliament to ride 
for repeal of the union. They answered that they would. The horses were sold and my dream of doing on Slivy Khan what my father had hoped to do on Anonymous died in the South Kensington where he has taken a small house at the corner of the Alfred Place opposite South Kensington, Kensington Station, a pleasant suburb then, thinly populated. The exhibition road was building and it was at the corner of Prince's Gardens that we met Jim Brown, the painter of the crucifixion that hangs in Karnakun Chapel in the roof high above the altar. I can remember him painting in the breakfast room and Tom Kelly coming to stand for the figure of Christ, the angels on either side of the cross. Jim had painted no doubt over his head. I had often wondered how he had been able to paint them in the great picture that my father used to describe to me in the summer room, the great picture entitled The Death of the Indian Chief a tribe of Indians reining up their horses at the edge of the precipice over which the horse bearing the dead chieftain springs madly into space. The day that we met him in the exhibition road, Jim told my father that he and his sisters were living in Princess Gardens. We invited us to come see his pictures on the following Sunday, and during the intervening days I could neither think nor speak of anything but Jim Brown, asking my father all the while why Jim was not the greatest painter in the world since he had painted a tribe of Indians. How many pictures? Fifty, sixty, a hundred? He did not think. They were at so many, 20, 30, 40, and if he could paint so many, why will not the Academy hang his pictures? Other pictures he paints now, not as good as the death of the Indian chief. My father suggested that Jim did not finish the pictures sufficiently for the Academy and tried to explain to me that Jim's drawings was defective, but it was difficult for me then to understand that a man might paint a tribe of Indians reining up their horses at the edge of the precipice and not yet be able to draw in the bed at night. I lay awake, thinking, waiting for the day to come. Father, where is Princess Gardens? He, is it the first turning or the second? Do you think you will be able to persuade Jim Brown to use models? And if he does, will the Academy accept his picture in May? End of the chapter. <clears throat> All right, that's the end of the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.